When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy, everybody. CJ here. Welcome to another dose of Dangerous History. And I'm coming to you in what's a very strange time, both for the wider world and the United States and for myself personally. Obviously, we have made a very sudden Orwellian shift from focusing all of the blue pilled on the evil threat of COVID personified by the unclean, unvexed, to the evil threat of all things Russian. And obviously, the Ukraine situation has completely overtaken the COVID narrative in terms of the government and media's main propaganda narratives and the dance to which the blue-pilled puppets amongst the general public are now dancing. I had thought when the Ukraine war first broke out that I might do some sort of a little episode giving my take on it. But then, you know, I'm so busy doing other things and researching other things from further back in history that there was no way I could do it in a timely fashion, although who knows how long this war will drag on. But then also, two other podcasters both put out far more thorough and detailed analyses of the real backstory of this war that are much better than anything I could have done on the topic. So that would be a two-hour presentation by the great Scott Horton on the subject at some sort of Libertarian Party event, I forget exactly where. And then also recently, another great podcaster, Daryl Cooper of Martyr Made and The Unraveling with Jocko Willink, who of course was a guest on this podcast not too, too long ago. He also recently put out a little Martyr Made special episode, little for him being, you know, like close to two hours in which he also tore it apart and relied to some degree on Scott Horton's work as well. So I'll try to remember for those of you who haven't caught either of, or both of those two podcasts that I just mentioned, I'll try to remember to put them in the show notes because they're both very much worth listening to and line up very much, you know, pretty much the same as my overall take on the situation. In addition to that, I do also want to let you all know, in case you don't already, that Scott Horton was recently a guest on the Unraveling podcast, which is done by Daryl Cooper and Jocko Willink, and it was a great episode, very much worth listening to, and I'll try to remember to put a link to that in the show notes as well for those of you who are not already listeners to that podcast. So, a little bit of news and updates about me and where I'm at currently in terms of my Little world, obviously the big world is losing its mind 
even more. Every time we think the big world out there can't get any more stupid and insane, it gets more stupid and more insane. But in this crazy environment, I have, of course, been struggling with various mental health issues pretty much continuously, to some degree at least, for two years since all this shit hit the fan back in March of 2020. And every time things start to get better, uh, both with me and with the world, they then quickly get worse. So one thing I've been doing lately has been training for the Seven Mile Bridge run down in the Keys in early April. This is a very famous run on the famous Seven Mile Bridge. It's one of the few runs in America, as far as I know, where the entire race is over the water. And I've always thought that was a cool race that would be neat to do. And especially since this year, I'm 40 years old. And I spent much of my adult life up until I was about 37, morbidly obese. And now I'm in relatively good shape, especially for a 40-year-old American male. I very much wanted to run this race this year, and so I managed to get one of the highly coveted 1,500 spots at 6 a.m. sharp when registration for the race opened up, and I heard that within, at most, a couple hours or so, it was all sold out. So since I signed up for that race back in, I think it was the beginning of February is when I actually signed up for it, and the race itself, like I said, is in, it's on the first weekend in April. That has helped my mental health situation, especially, you know, getting over the stresses of moving and whatever, to have that goal and to have something to work towards that's set, you know, on April 2nd, I've got to run the seven mile bridge. So I've been upping my exercise, especially running, but other stuff as well. And my exercise had slacked off a bit in the months I was dealing with moving and all that stuff. So it's been, you know, a series of rocky montages. I'm out there running as much as I can and hitting the gym more and all these sorts of things. Really want to do a decent job. You know, I know I'm not going to win the seven mile bridge run, not even for my age category, most likely, but I want to put in a respectable time. And by the way, I'm already working on designing the commemorative tattoo I'm going to get for running the seven mile bridge at age 40, but that's a different story. But training for that run has been giving me a sense of purpose and helping with my mental health in addition to my physical health. So anyway, exactly a week ago from when I'm recording this, I was running in the morning before work and I'm on a tight schedule when I do a a morning weekday run. You know, it really takes, as Jack Burton would say, crackerjack timing where I've got to get out to my running spot by a certain time, run for a certain amount of time, quickly drop by home, shower, get dressed for work and floor it for my 45 to 50 minute commute to work. So I'm running in one of my favorite areas, which is over and around the big Flagler Beach Bridge. And what I do is I park in a park on one side of the Intercoastal Waterway, and then I run from that park out and over the big bridge down to the other side, and there's some other parks and preserves on the other side of the Intercoastal too, so I run down into those and around and through those for a while, and then I run back across the big bridge and get back to my car. So a week ago from when I'm recording this, I was doing that run, which is one of my favorite runs to do in this area. And when I'm running around in the preserve on the far side of the Intercoastal from where I park, There's an area where there's like a wooden catwalk, boardwalk sort of thing that goes through the mangroves and marsh and everything like that. And it's really pretty and nice. And it's a very pleasant place to run or walk or whatever. So I'm running around in that area. 
And I often pass people who are walking dogs or whatever like that, and they're usually good as far as the dog's on a leash, and they kind of pull the dog off to the side as I run past and whatever. So I pass this one uh, older guy, not super old, I I would guess maybe 60. And, you know, I'm always pleasant when I pass someone, whether they're jogging, walking, walking a dog, whatever it is. You know, I always give a little wave, say good morning, whatever like that. I always try to be pleasant and polite when I pass somebody. And so this guy is walking uh, what looked like an older golden retriever, you know, a graying golden retriever. And he had it on a leash. He was being, you know, a responsible dog owner, whatever. And I passed this guy and his dog one time. And the guy kind of pulled the dog off to the side of the catwalk. But, you know, it's maybe like five feet wide or whatever. So you can't really get super far away. But he kind of pulls the dog to the side. And I jog past the dog. You know, I wave to the guy, say good morning or whatever. And as I pass, the dog doesn't do anything aggressive or whatever. Is completely calm and, you know, seems fine. A few minutes later, I'm coming back the other way, still on the little boardwalk catwalk thing. And again, I get to this guy. And again, you know, he kind of pulls the dog off to the side and I go to pass. Only this time, right as I'm getting past the guy and his dog, the dog suddenly out of nowhere lunges at me. And I stop and I yell. And the guy looked as surprised as I was. Perhaps I'm the first person this dog has ever done this to. And I look down, I pull up my shirt and I don't see broken skin. I see some reddish scratches on the skin. And I wasn't feeling any significant pain. So I yelled something at the guy. I don't even remember what I yelled at that point. But the main thing I'm thinking is, well, the dog didn't really get me that bad. Looks like he didn't even break the skin. I want to finish up my run because I'm training for something. And I want to be able to finish up my run and have enough time to, you know, quickly shower and zoom off to work and whatever. It's very close tolerances as far as the scheduling for this sort of thing. So, you know, after briefly stopping, looking at myself and briefly yelling something at the guy, I continued my run and finished my run, got back over to my car, drove home. And then as I'm getting ready to hop in the shower at home, I realize, oh, the dog actually really got me good. And I guess I didn't feel it as much because of whatever adrenaline shock, whatever, when it happened. And what happened was the part where he really broke the skin good and bit me, was more towards my back. Where he got me is like my lower right backside area, like a little bit above where the waist of my pants would be. Sort of like my lower flank area, I don't know, I guess you'd call it. And the part that's more towards the side, which I could easily see just by looking down when I lifted my shirt, the skin wasn't broken. It was just, you know, kind of reddish, scratched, whatever. And the part where the skin got broken a bunch was more towards the back, and that's why I didn't see it when I just, you know, kind of briefly looked down. But when I was at home, getting ready to go in the shower, you know, with my shirt off and mirrors all around me or whatever, you couldn't miss it. So, I'm in a situation where a dog I don't know, owned by a random guy I don't know in a park, bit me, and now I've got no way to know who this guy was, what the dog was, or what the status is as far as the dog's vaccinations and whatever go. Now, there's very high odds that probably the dog is properly vaccinated. It's clearly a guy's pet. It was on a leash with a collar. Probably 90 plus percent likely the dog is properly vaccinated against everything, including rabies or whatever. But I have no way of knowing that with absolute certainty. And rabies is one of those things that if you get it, and you don't get it properly treated, it's pretty much a death sentence. 
So then, long story short, I had to spend the entire day waiting first in an urgent care clinic and then in an emergency room because the urgent care clinic didn't have the rabies vaccine. And I had to spend like literally all day because the ER was completely swamped when I got there, of course. And then finally, late at night, after spending all day sitting in medical offices and things waiting, I finally got treated for rabies and they did a whole bunch of shots around the wound itself which were excruciating, and then gave me a rabies vaccine in my arm, which was no big deal. And then I have to go get three more rabies shots over the next two weeks. And actually this morning, I just got my third one because it's a week after the bite. So luckily, the subsequent rabies shots after that first one in the ER, I've been able to get through the local Department of Health office. And yeah, I'm an anarchist. I don't like to give the government credit, but I will say this. I've been extremely impressed by my local uh, Florida Health Department office. Like, they've actually been really great. Every single person I've dealt with there has been really nice and efficient, and I can't say anything bad about them. I was really worried. You know, I figured it couldn't be any worse than the ER and spending like six hours there just to get another shot. But, you know, I was expecting basically the health department would be the medical equivalent of the DMV, and they have not been. They have been superb. Just to give you an example, this morning, I was getting my second shot with them, and I was in and out in 20 minutes. Like, that's really hard to beat with anything medical ever. So, you know, at least I've been able to get the subsequent shots through them instead of, because the ER was like, well, if you get them from us, you've got to come and, like, get in line. And I said, is there any way I can make an appointment ahead of time so I can just come in and quickly get the shot? Because the shot takes two seconds. And they're like, nope, you got to come in and wait with everybody else who's in for whatever, you know? So anyway, uh, this this has been, um, you know, a rough week for me, to put it mildly. Uh, damaging to my mental health, to say the least. And then, the very next day after I was bitten and dealt with all that, and spent all day in the hospital, suddenly, my Dangerous History Podcast Twitter account gets quote-unquote permanently suspended. That's actually what they call it, permanently suspended, which, if you know what the word suspended is supposed to mean, permanently suspended is an oxymoron. And that just suddenly happened out of the blue. I've never had any warnings or anything or temporary suspensions by them previously in the almost eight years I've had that account. And of course, as any of you who have dealt with this sort of thing know, it is extremely Kafka-esque. They don't tell you at all what specifically it was that caused this to happen, so I have no idea. And they say, oh, you can write an appeal and maybe we'll get back to you. Well, it's like, how can I write a cogent and coherent appeal? when I don't even know what the hell tweet or tweets actually caused this in the first place. It'd be like, again, very Kafka-esque, if the cops arrest you, brought you in, put you on trial, and said, okay, you're going to go first as the defendant, and you've got to defend yourself. But we're not going to tell you what it is you're accused of. Like, good luck mounting a decent defense at all, right, if you don't even know what you supposedly did wrong. So anyway, if you've been a follower of mine on Twitter and Suddenly, my Twitter account disappeared. That's why. And maybe you haven't noticed, if you're somebody who follows a bunch of people, you may not have specifically noticed that I suddenly disappeared, but you may have noticed that for almost a week now, I haven't had any new tweets on the Dangerous History Podcast Twitter account. So anyway, I did set up, just the other day, an alternative Twitter. And this one is not under the name Dangerous History Podcast or Prof. CJ or anything like that. This one is just under CJ Kilmer, and Kilmer, in my case, is with two L's. 
And so if you just search for the name CJ Kilmer on Twitter, you'll probably find it. And the actual specific Twitter handle is at KilmerCJ. And again, it's K-I-L-L-M-E-R-C-J. No spaces or dashes or anything in there. At KilmerCJ. So if you followed me before, please come follow the new account. And if you haven't been a Twitter follower of me, please consider following me on Twitter. I'm having to rebuild from scratch. Basically what happened was, and again, I have no idea what specific tweets or whatever caused this, but ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I've been posting more, I've been doing more tweeting than I had for the most part ever since I had the account. And a lot of my tweets related in one way or another to that conflict went pretty viral, at least, you know, for me. And I started picking up a lot of new Twitter followers. And in the space of about two weeks, I went from around 3,400 Twitter followers to just shy of 4,000 when they nuked me. So in the space of two weeks, because of mostly tweeting about the Ukraine conflict and everything related to it, my Twitter following was growing by whatever, 15, 20% you know, again, from 3,400 to just shy of 4,000. And I'm pretty sure that whatever specific tweets are the excuse for doing this, and whether it was a Twitter user that reported me and ratted me out to the Twitter authorities, or whether it was some SJW millennial in Twitter itself that whatever algorithm or whatever found me and decided to nuke me, I think that the ultimate cause, whatever the proximate cause might be, the ultimate cause is that I was very effective in growing my following and saying many radical things you're not supposed to say right now. And if you think that the censorship during the height of COVID was bad, wait till you see the censorship with a war. And especially the more that the U.S. and NATO gets drawn into it in various ways, expect the censorship and the propaganda, which are two sides of the same coin, to just amp up and amp up and amp up. So anyway, as I'm recording this, I actually am on spring break, and a little bit later today, I'm going to be leaving for a little four-day mini-vacation with my wife and kids to the Gulf Coast of Florida, and so I'm looking forward to going at least somewhat off the grid and decompressing and trying to get in a better mental place than I've been for the past week. I've been extremely hard at work lately behind the scenes on my long-awaited and planned upcoming series on World War I propaganda in the United States. I'd been working on the research and note composition aspects of doing this series for a long time, like for probably well over a year at this point maybe even close to two. But given the recent events in Ukraine and the world's response to it, I think this series is now even more needed and even more relevant than ever. So the first episode is going to be about the British propaganda operation in the United States, which was extensive. From the outbreak of war in the summer of 1914 until the U.S. entered the war officially, in April of 1917, the British government carried out a massive propaganda campaign directed at the United States, designed to bring them into the war. And even though a lot of this has actually been exposed in public knowledge for a hundred years at this point, most Americans today have no idea this was done. By the way, the Brits did this again with uh, World War II. And then subsequent episodes in this series are going to cover various aspects of propaganda and censorship in the United States done by Americans once 
the U.S. is officially in the war. And it's really relevant to what's going on in the media right now. Because even though the technologies of communication and propaganda have gotten, you know, much more varied and sophisticated, a lot of the same basic methods are the exact same ones that they're using today. Now, over the past few days, I was really trying to get the first episode of my World War I propaganda series to where I could record it before I go off on my little mini vacation. But unfortunately, it's just too detailed and too extensive what I'm doing. It's going to be a very dense, highly detailed and researched deep dive. And I just wasn't quite able to get my notes done to the point where I was ready to record that first episode prior to going on this trip. And of course, when I'm on this trip, there's no way I'll be able to record anything. So instead, I decided to do what I'm going to be doing here for the rest of this episode, which is going to be a shorter thing, sort of more like a silver bullet episode, even though as you may be able to tell by the audio, I am in my home office studio, not in my car. And this is just going to be my top 10 war propaganda techniques. And these apply just as much to World War I as they do to the Ukraine war, or as they do to World War II, or as they did to, say, the Iraq war. Most, if not all, of what I'm going to be going through, you can see, at least to some degree, in regard to every American war, at least since the Spanish-American War of 1898. So without further ado, here are my top 10 war propaganda techniques. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a 4-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And so, by the way, these are in no specific order. It's really hard to say which of these are the most important or powerful or useful. I think it partly depends on the situation and the specifics of the war in question and the strategic choices of the propagandists. So these are not in any sort of ranked order. So technique number one is demonize the enemy's leader. The enemy's leader, the leader of whatever regime is supposedly the bad guys that we want to go fight. Their leader needs to be turned into the epitome of evil and the source of all or at least most of the world's problems at the moment. Ever since World War II, 
it's extremely common for whoever's the bad guy right now to be explicitly compared to Hitler. And there's a lot of that floating around currently in regard to Vladimir Putin is like Hitler, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, there was also, you can go back to the first Gulf War and Saddam Hussein was frequently compared to Hitler. So ever since Hitler, that's the thing is whoever's the bad guy, whether it's Slobodan Milosevic or, you know, whatever crackpot third rate authoritarian in some third world country is the new Hitler. It's sort of the Hitler of the weak club. But the overall idea of making a, a cartoonish evil caricature of an enemy regime's leader didn't start with Hitler. All you got to do is go back to, and of course, I'll cover this extensively in that series I was talking about. All you got to do is look back to how first the British and then the American propagandists of World War I portrayed the Kaiser. Now, the Kaiser's not a great guy. He's a political leader. So right off the bat, I'm not a fan. And yeah, he had some authoritarian aspects, but I mean, he was a lot less authoritarian than, say, the Tsar, who was, for most of the war, on the side of the British and French. And the Kaiser certainly is nowhere even remotely in the ballpark of later actual dictators like a Hitler or a Mao or a Stalin. And yet, if you look at the World War I propaganda, especially that coming out of the US and UK during the war, he was portrayed as a literal monster. And the extreme hysteria regarding Putin right now is just the latest version of that. And again, do I think Putin's a good guy? No. Would I want to live under his government? No. But the idea that he's like on the same level as a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao is just simply laughable if you actually look objectively at the evidence. But as you know, if you've read 1984, it's useful to be able to focus people's hatred on a single boogeyman and do like a 10 minutes hate where people just get to rant and call for blood and talk about how much they want to murder this person and whatever. And so it's totally fine for people on social media to blatantly advocate the assassination of Vladimir Putin, and that doesn't get you canned for advocating violence or whatever. But let me use some figurative language about being unhappy with the American elites of right now. And, ooh, calling for violence. Ooh, get you off there. Which I don't even know for sure if that's what got my DHP Twitter account canned, but maybe. Who knows? So, yeah. Technique number one, demonize the leader of whatever is the enemy. Technique number two, dehumanize the enemy's people. So you demonize the leader, and then you dehumanize the people, and that sometimes involves demonization as well, of course. But it's very important. And by the way, I'm not saying that they're always wrong to portray the leader of some authoritarian regime as being a bad guy. There's usually at least some degree of truth to it. But then, even if they're basically right, then, you know, you run into the problem of, okay, this leader is a bad guy, and his regime is bad, but there's millions and millions of people that live in whatever country. And most of them are just regular people like you and me that are more concerned about, you know, going to work, taking care of their family, raising their kids, whatever. And they just happen to have the bad luck to be born in a part of the world where they are under a not so great regime. But does that mean they all deserve to suffer sanctions and, you know, the effects of that and starvation and economic destruction and potentially, if it goes to full-fledged war, you know, getting killed? Like, how do you make it okay 
to use the ultimate example of World War II, how do you make it morally okay to deliberately firebomb civilians, as was done by the U.S. and British Air Forces during World War II? How do you make it okay to incinerate women and children and elderly people? Well, the answer is you dehumanize the enemy's people. You make sure your propaganda contains images and things that portray the entire nation, however many millions of them there are, as all being fundamentally evil and defective. So it's not just that Hitler's a bad guy. The German people are all a bunch of bloodthirsty Huns. It's not just that the imperial Japanese government are bad guys who are doing bad things. It's that the entire Japanese race is evil. And if you can convince your population of that, that basically it's not just that Sauron is a bad guy, it's that everybody who lives in his territory are a bunch of orc monsters, then nobody really cares if you institute blockades and sanctions that kill a bunch of women and children by keeping out food and medicine, or that you firebomb civilian areas. It's fine. You're just, you're no different than an exterminator dealing with a pest problem before it gets out of hand. And if you want some particularly disturbing but very good historical work on this in regard to World War II, and specifically the U.S. versus Japan, the top historian to read on that is a guy named John Dower, D-O-W-E-R. His most famous book is War Without Mercy, but he wrote some other books and articles over a long career, largely about the ways in which U.S. propaganda dehumanized the entire Japanese nation and thus helped to enable a higher degree of atrocities and brutality and targeting of civilians and so forth than otherwise would have been possible. War propaganda technique number three turn the conflict into a simplistic morality play. And it's got to be on like a, you know, fourth grade level at best. So the war that you're fighting or the war that's going on somewhere else that you want to get your country into has to be portrayed as being an extremely clear-cut simplistic case of pure good versus pure evil. It's got to be about saving democracy. It's got to be about protecting freedom. It's got to be about the forces of light standing up to the forces of darkness. End of story. No nuance, no subtlety, no complexity, no shades of gray. And this usually involves obscuring the real origins and reasons for the war in the first place, which, let's be honest, the real reasons for wars are pretty common. They're cynical things like resources, territory, power, etc. But you've got to ignore all that and instead make it, you know, pure good guy in white hat versus pure bad guy in black hat, end of story. And never mind that most wars throughout all of history aren't really pure good guy versus pure bad guy. Most wars are bad guy versus bad guy. Now, maybe in some cases, one of them is more of a bad guy than the other. But the idea that one side really is bad and doing horrible things necessarily means that the other side is quote-unquote good is simply a fallacy. But we want to believe that. We want to believe that. We've been conditioned from a very early age to think that if there's a bad guy, then whoever's fighting him must be the good guy, even though very often that's not true. And all you got to do is talk to anybody who has been a bouncer in some rough bars 
or who's been a beat cop in some rough neighborhoods and, you know, has seen more than their fair share of actual street fights and maybe had to deal with breaking them up and whatever. And ask a person like that, when you encounter a street fight or a bar fight or whatever, how often is it really a pure good guy versus bad guy situation? How often is it like one guy is a completely nice, clean-cut, upstanding citizen, totally minding his own business, not looking for trouble, and the other guy is just, you know, a nasty, evil thug looking to commit violence because he's evil? Now, I'm sure that happens, but it's extremely rare. Extremely rare. Usually when there's a street fight or a bar fight, it's two bad guys. Now, maybe one of them's worse. Not saying it's always that they're exactly equally bad if you were even able to measure that objectively. But it's extremely rare that one side of a street fight is purely innocent and good and had no bad intentions. In almost every case of real life street fights, both parties were, to some extent at least, looking for trouble or looking to fight. It takes two to tango. And the same is true for wars. And again, I'm not saying that just completely unprovoked naked aggression never happens. But in the grand scheme of history, it's the extremely rare exception. And very often, by the way, even in wars that from a zoomed out far away kind of look, look that way, very often if you actually bother to dig into the nitty gritty backstory and details, you find out it's not as clear cut as you thought. But the media's job and the government's job is to prevent you from asking those questions, from doing that research, from actually trying to understand the details. Because as soon as you do, then their bullshit morality play simplistic narrative gets exposed for the bullshit propaganda that it is. War propaganda technique number four. Fabricate and or exaggerate heroic stories for your side. Now, this is done... If a country is already at war, like so, for example, once the British start fighting Germany in World War I, British propaganda starts fabricating and or exaggerating British hero stories of various types. And it can also be done if some country is involved in a war and wants to pull another country into the war on their side to help them out. Very often this will be done as well. So during the period where the British were propagandizing America into World War I, they would often include stories of heroic uh, British soldiers or nurses, you know, martyrs, things like that, or heroic Belgians, you know, standing up to the Germans. And a lot of these stories eventually get shown to be either greatly exaggerated or, in some cases, flat-out fabricated. And obviously, looking at the current Ukraine situation, there's already been a bunch of those that have already been debunked. So, the most famous, of course, being the Ghost of Kiev which a lot of blue-check warmongers just lapped up and believed because they wanted to, but was quickly exposed as obvious bullshit. And then there was the story about the supposed, was it Snake Island or whatever, Ukrainian military base, that supposedly all the sailors there made a heroic Alamo-style last stand and fought to the last man. And it turned out, no, actually, when the Russians showed up there, they just quickly surrendered. So, yeah, who knows how many other BS hero stories have been, and will continue to be, pumped into the media. War propaganda technique number five. Fabricate and or exaggerate enemy atrocity stories. Now, for sure, 
It also helps if you can put a spotlight on any real atrocity stories that happen. And by the way, atrocities always happen. Atrocities always happen in every war that's not like super quick and clean, which is very rare. Especially in a war that involves any situation in which a foreign army is occupying a hostile territory with a population that largely doesn't want them there, there's going to be civilian insurgency and there's ultimately going to be whether authorized or not, whether, you know, it's people going off the reservation of the occupying army or people actually being ordered to do these things. Either way, sooner or later, even if there's an attempt made to minimize atrocities and things, some of it is going to happen inevitably. Find me a war where absolutely no atrocities were committed by any of the parties in the war. Good luck. But one of the most powerful ways to both dehumanize the enemy's people and to demonize their leader is to really amp up and hype up the atrocity stories. And if that includes having to grossly exaggerate atrocities that did happen, and in some cases having to completely invent atrocities that never happened, so be it. And in fact, the British discovered this pretty early on. The British propagandists in World War I pretty early on discovered that this was one of the most effective ways of propagandizing both their own people and trying to pull neutral nations' populations, like the United States first and foremost, into being sympathetic to the British side and hostile to the Germans. And when I do my World War I propaganda series, I will go through a bunch of these. So I would say be extremely kind of default skeptical when you hear stories of Russian atrocities. Now, I'm not saying they're all false. I am absolutely certain that there are some atrocities being committed in Ukraine in this war by the Russians. I have no doubt that that stuff is happening to some extent. But if history tells us anything, it is that the Western media is probably deliberately amping that stuff up. And I would say, again, looking at the history of propaganda surrounding the Spanish-American War or World War I, among others, that the more outlandish and like just cartoonishly horror movie sounding an atrocity story about the enemy is, the more likely it's either grossly exaggerated or just flat out made up. So just to give you a couple of examples, in the lead up to the Spanish-American War, when the Hearst newspapers were deliberately trying to get a war going in order to boost their, their revenue... One of the things the Hearst papers were doing were printing these insanely over-the-top stories about atrocities supposedly committed by Spanish troops in Cuba. Now, that was a nasty insurgency conflict. I am absolutely sure that there were some legit atrocities committed by the Spanish occupying troops there. No question. But what the American pro-war press ran with was so ridiculous and over-the-top in terms of a lot of their atrocity stories. And many of these were just flat-out debunked, eventually, after the war already happened. So just to give you one example, there was a story that was printed in a lot of American newspapers in the run-up to the Spanish-American War that claimed that Spanish troops had come into a particular town where there was a convent, and they had basically, like, raped and slaughtered all the nuns in the convent in a particularly brutal, lurid fashion. Later, when an actual independent journalist went to try to verify this, not only did he find zero evidence that this particular atrocity ever happened, but turns out there wasn't even a convent anywhere near the town where this supposedly took place. 
in World War I, the British propagandists published both for their own population and for neutral countries' consumption like the United States, all kinds of stories about German soldiers raping and mutilating women, very often Belgian civilian women, supposedly. And one of their favorite things they would claim that the Germans did is that they would cut off the woman's breasts. And it's amazing how often this trope was repeated week after week, month after month, year after year. Oh, the Germans went into this Belgian town and they rounded up every woman and raped them all and then cut off all their breasts and, you know, did whatever else to them. And again, did atrocities happen, including some rapes? I have no doubt. But the ridiculous over-the-top horror movie narrative is just BS. Also, by the way, there was a famous one that the British ran for quite a while that said that German soldiers in Belgium were going to uh, orphanages and, and things like that and grabbing Belgian babies and then bayonetting them for fun and sport. Turns out there's no evidence this happened once, let alone that it was like a common practice. By the way, this calls to mind the famous case of the phony atrocity story in the run-up to the first Iraq war in which a woman from Kuwait claimed that she had seen Iraqi soldiers going into preemie wards of hospitals and pulling out preemie Kuwaiti babies and just, you know, tossing them in the street to die or whatever like that. And later turned out that, uh, yeah, that never happened. And actually, the woman who claimed all this was actually someone who was closely connected to the Kuwaiti government. And so that was completely debunked, but not until after the Gulf War happened. War propaganda technique number six. Exaggerate the enemy's intentions and or capabilities. This is very important the further away the conflict is that people are trying to pull you into. Because it's pretty hard to get like a Kansas farm boy to want to go to war 8,000 miles away from his home. How do you give him the sense that some war going on in a country he couldn't find on a map and maybe can't even pronounce should be worth him risking his life over? Well, the best way to do that is to grossly exaggerate both the enemy's intentions and their capabilities. Or, you know, at least exaggerate one of those, if not both of those. And this is summed up by the stupid blue-pilled cliché, we gotta fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. Which is almost always a complete lie. So in the Spanish-American War... The pro-war people grossly exaggerated the capabilities of the Spanish military and also grossly exaggerated their intentions and were basically saying, oh, we got to go to war against Spain, otherwise they might attack Florida or something. That was a complete crock. In World War I, Americans were told by British and then by their own propagandists that the Kaiser had both the intention and the realistic capability to take over all of Europe and then maybe the world if we don't go fight them over there now. In World War II, same thing. Same thing. Americans were told, you know, if we don't go fight Hitler real soon, he's going to be showing up on our coast at some point real soon. Never mind that in real life, Hitler was never even confident enough in his ability to cross the English Channel and invade the UK. He and his military commanders ultimately decided they didn't have the capability to do that at the height of their success in 1940 and 41. And... I'm sure Hitler might have wanted to do that if he had the capabilities, but how the German military, if they're not able to pull off a cross-English Channel invasion, which, by the way, the English Channel is a stretch of water that more than a few people have successfully swum across. The idea that they didn't feel capable of crossing that bit of water and conquering the British Isles, but in the relatively foreseeable future, they would have the capability to cross the Atlantic Ocean 
somehow get to North America without getting wiped out by the British and American navies on the way, and show up with enough millions of troops to conquer the lower 48 is a fantasy. Again, doesn't mean Hitler wasn't an evil dude, doesn't mean there's not a case to be made on other grounds, but the idea that he had the realistic capability to pose a threat to the American home territory, other than through like the occasional saboteur doing something, is just laughable. And the same thing here with those people who actually believe that Putin really has both the intention and the realistic capabilities to reconquer the entire former Soviet Union and then maybe, you know, recreate the entire Soviet bloc. All you got to do is look at the hard numbers, okay? Pull up Russia's population, the size of its economy, and its military budget, and compare it to the United States. Then even set the U.S. aside and say, how does it stack up against some of the other members of NATO? And what you'll find is that just France and the U.K., excluding every other NATO country, just France and the U.K., combined together, to be clear, I'm talking France plus the U.K., not France or the U.K., have a significantly bigger economy than Russia, almost as many people in total as Russia, and a significantly bigger military budget than Russia. So there's every reason to believe that just France and the UK should be more than capable of keeping Russia from, you know, steamrolling west of UK, of uh, Ukraine and uh, into Western Europe. I mean, Russia's economy is smaller than Italy's. Its military budget is, I believe, less than 10% of the US military budget. The one thing he's got, the one thing Putin's got is thousands of nukes. But that's it. War propaganda technique number seven. Lie by omission, which another way to think about it, sort of a flip side of it, is cherry picking. Censorship, whether hard or soft or a combination of the two, is very useful here. Basically, what you do is you hide things by just not covering them. You hide things like any atrocities committed by your side. You hide things like any of your side's complicity in causing the conflict in the first place. And so by using this technique of lying by omission, the general public has no idea. They hear all the atrocity stories of the enemy side, and let's even say for the sake of argument that by some miracle, all the atrocity stories about the enemy are actually true, neither fabricated nor exaggerated. But let's say your side is also guilty of a lot of atrocities, but you never hear about those ones. What's the perception that the general public gets after consuming propaganda? Their perception is, oh my God, look at all these atrocities committed by the other side, and gee whiz, I haven't heard of our side doing anything wrong, so therefore they must be pure as the driven snow. And the same thing where, you know, you talk about the things the other side has done to cause the conflict in the first place, but you quiet up, you hush up, you don't share any of the things your side did to cause the conflict in the first place. Lying by omission is a very effective technique in propaganda. And you can do it successfully even if all the things you're saying about the enemy are true. But you just keep quiet all of the things that reflect negatively on your side. And what's so powerful about this technique is that even if people do a quick like Google fact check of the things you're telling them that are bad about the other side, and let's say it all comes back as being factual, they'll go, wow, okay, this is a trustworthy source. Everything they told me is factual. I just double-checked it. Yeah, 
but they left out deliberately a whole bunch of other information that would give you a completely different take on the overall situation and who's good and who's bad and who's to blame and who's not. I did a whole Dangerous History podcast episode um, years ago on historical lying by omission. And um, I don't remember if it's old enough to be behind my paywall or not, but uh, if it's not, I'll try and remember to put a link to it in this episode. War propaganda technique number eight. Cropping the story. Also known as truncating the antecedent, as Scott Horton would put it, or dropping the needle where you want in order to manipulate the narrative is another way I might put it. And this is sort of like a particular sub-variant of lying by omission. Basically, what it is, is you start telling the story of this particular war and how it started at whatever moment in time slants things the most favorably in your side's direction. So, just to take a particular example, the media acts like the entire story of Russia versus Ukraine basically started in February of 2022. And they drop the needle like right before Russia invades, usually. And there's no sense of like, no, 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 there's years. I mean, arguably, you need to go at least as far back as the end of the Cold War. And definitely to even have the slightest understanding of what's going on, you need to go back to at least 2014, when this conflict really started. But by dropping the needle on the story in February 2022, it's like, oh, look at this. It's very clear cut. Again, back to that simplistic morality play. Look at this. Russia invaded Ukraine. They're the aggressor. They're the bad guy. That's all there is to know. There's no complexity, no nuance, no subtlety. It's the same thing they did with 9-11. Oh, history just suddenly started on 9-11-2001, right? No backstory on any of the deep roots of that attack that go back years or even decades. They also did the same thing with the Iranian Revolution of 1979. The American media's take on that was... Suddenly, the Iranian nation just woke up one morning and went crazy and randomly overthrew a nice guy called the Shah and put in place uh, crazy Ayatollahs. Why? Because they're crazy. And nothing about, well, it's actually blowback because in 1953, the CIA overthrew their democratic government. And yeah, actually, it's ultimately our fault that that revolution happened. It was blowback. Nope, 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 nope. Drop the needle usually way, way later than it should be. There's one thing I've learned from, you know, close to 30 years of studying history. It's that things always have a lot deeper roots and backstory than you normally are led to believe. And context and backstory matter. It matters a lot, right? It's a totally different story if I give you the impression the other day I was randomly... uh hanging out in a bar, minding my own business, and a guy punched me. Just boom. Versus if, let's say, I left out, oh, before this guy, quote-unquote, randomly punched me out of the blue, I actually had just spent four hours talking shit and bothering him and being very provocative, and then finally he lost it and punched me, right? Now, he still threw the first punch, but it's a very different story if you give the context and the backstory that actually I was harassing this guy for hours, and then he finally lost it. This is that concept of like how America goes to war that is summarized by, I think, Curtis Yarvin as, kick a dog until it bites you, then call it a bad dog and shoot it. 
unlike in the case in real life where um, I did give you the whole backstory that like, no, I actually did nothing to provoke that particular dog that bit me, right? But, you know, obviously it would have been a very different story if this was a dog that was minding its own business and I went up and started, you know, kicking it and whacking it with a stick and it finally bit me. Obviously that would make a very different story and I would deserve at least some of the blame for the bite having happened. War propaganda technique number nine. Give your people empty, easy, symbolic gestures to signal their virtue and to signal their allegiance to your cause. The main one right now, of course, is people putting Ukrainian flags in their social media bios and in their social media handles. These are the same people that up until a few weeks ago had syringes and other COVID symbols. It costs you nothing doesn't really mean anything. It's just a way of symbolizing your allegiance to the dominant narrative. It's no different than, you know, putting on an armband to symbol your support of a cause. It's bullshit, but it makes the weak-minded feel like they're a part of something, and it works on our deep instincts as social primates to want to conform and be part of a tribe. And so you give people largely meaningless, empty gestures that don't really cost them anything. Similar to to when everybody was putting a black square in their social media profile picture and putting little Black Lives Matter things and whatever. It's a way to conform and it's a way to virtue signal and it's a way to then identify who's on the outside because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you put whatever's the latest propaganda icon into your social media profile? So it's the same thing with previous wars, you know, where people would wear various types of symbols and armbands and other things, you know, or have a a button or a pin that says, I bought war bonds or whatever. And if someone's walking down the street without having the proper symbol or armband or button or whatever, then everybody's like, what's your problem? You're a bad person. Why are you unpatriotic? Why don't you support the cause? Are you working for the Kaiser? Why didn't you buy war bonds? Do you want the bad guys to win? So give your population meaningless little virtue signal things to do. And it makes them feel special and like they're really part of the team. And it makes them on the lookout for anybody who's not displaying the same symbols of their virtue and allegiance. Which brings us to the 10th and final war propaganda technique for this episode, which is to smear and demonize any of your people who ask questions or raise criticisms or bring up facts that call the narrative into question. Basically, demonize dissenters. Your neighbors and fellow citizens who don't buy into why we should go to war in country X, they're not just mistaken. They're not just people with a different perspective. They're not just people who maybe have access to different information that you haven't yet considered. They're evil. And very likely, they're working for the evil enemy regime. They create this false dichotomy. Either you want to go to war against country X, or you love and support that regime and its evil leader that we've already demonized. And you sympathize with those evil people that we've already dehumanized who live there. Basically, you smear any dissident voices, any voices reluctant to go to war, as they must love Regime X, an evil bad leader Y. So if you think America should stay out of World War I, you must love the Kaiser and think he's great. 
Not that many years ago, if you thought that the United States should stay the hell out of the Syrian civil war, well, then you must think Assad is a great guy and you're an Assad apologist. Or if back in 0203 you thought the U.S. should stay the hell out of Iraq, why, you must be pro-Saddam. And right now, if you think the U.S. should stay the hell out of Ukraine, you must love Putin. This is one of the oldest tricks in the book. It's one of the favorite tactics of warhawks. And it's not new. And I'll just give you one example that goes way back. In the mid-1890s, when there was the rebellion breaking out in Cuba that ultimately becomes the occasion for the U.S. to go to war against Spain, there were warhawks in the Congress, led by Henry Cabot Lodge, longtime Republican senator from Massachusetts, close friend of Teddy Roosevelt, who were pushing for America to intervene into the war going on in Cuba. One of the older guys who was pushing back against the idea that America should go to war with Spain over Cuba was another Republican, the Speaker of the House at the time, Thomas Brackett Reed, who was a Republican congressman from Maine. Now, Reed and Lodge were both Republicans from the Northeast. They agreed, as far as I know, on like virtually every domestic issue of the time. And they were basically friends who had worked together for years in the Congress. But they parted ways on wanting to go to war with Spain over Cuba with Lodge pushing for war, and Reed saying no. And in response to Thomas Brackett Reed saying he didn't think the U.S. should go to war with Spain over Cuba, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge's response was, and I quote, I am very sorry that your extreme pro-Spanish prejudices should warp your otherwise just mind, end quote. So, that was the response of a war hawk to a guy who was a friend of his and who was on the same page as him in most things, right? This is a fellow New England Republican high-level congressperson, right? Guys who were otherwise friends and had worked together on various things and agreed on most domestic issues. But because Thomas Brackett Reed didn't buy into America needs to go to war against Spain, Henry Cabot Lodge's response was, and again, I quote, I repeat myself, I am very sorry that your extreme pro-Spanish prejudices should warp your otherwise just mind, end quote. So if Henry Cabot Lodge was willing to smear his fellow Republican high-up member of Congress as being pro extreme pro-Spanish, then of course the warmongers of today have no hesitation in demonizing anybody, whether prominent or not, who has doubts about the wisdom of getting involved to an even greater extent in something like the conflict in Ukraine, they have no hesitation at all about calling you a Putin lover, a Putin apologist, pro-Russian, you name it. So anyway, I hope that by explicitly going over these 10 common war propaganda techniques It'll make it a little bit easier for you to spot them when they're being used by politicians and media figures and maybe even some of your own blue-pilled neighbors. It's sort of like the logical fallacies, and a lot of these propaganda things actually are based on a logical fallacy of some sort. But it's sort of like the logical fallacies in when you actually know what they are and you have labels for them, it's easier to spot them. Because every single one of these ten... You can see in World War I over a hundred years ago, 
And every single one of these 10, you can see in regard to the Ukraine conflict in the last three weeks. The elites, the powers that be, they don't have to invent new tricks because the majority of the masses keep falling for the same tricks over and over and over. So why bother? I mean, they, they use new methods because they have new, you know, media and new technology to do this through. But the basic narrative techniques and manipulative techniques are the same. They haven't come up with hardly anything new, maybe even nothing new at all, honestly, that I can think of. I don't know if you can find a single war propaganda technique being used now that wasn't already being used at least as far back as World War I and in some cases much further. So hopefully this gives you something to think about and hopefully this will help you kind of be even better equipped for your own intellectual self-defense as the world loses its shit all around us even more. And on that happy note, I better go so I can finish packing up and get off to my little trip. But hopefully things will turn around for me. Hopefully my bad luck is on the decline and I hope you're doing well. And I hope you're not getting bitten by any unknown dogs that then necessitate you getting a zillion rabies shots. And hopefully your social media doesn't get canned out of the blue. Although, given the degree of censorship and propaganda afoot right now, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens to at least some of you who are listening to me. Take care, and again, look for that World War I propaganda series to kick off relatively soon. I'm not sure exactly when I'll be able to record the first episode, but. I'm going to do my best to get it out as soon as I can once I get back from my trip, you know, to finish up my, my note composition for it and record it and get it out. Because I think right now, especially like it was very relevant during COVID with all the propaganda surrounding that, but with war propaganda amping up in recent weeks, covering something like World War I propaganda is more relevant and needed than ever, I think. So thanks for listening and take care.